Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on May the 10th, 2015. I'm sure you're all really relieved to start to see some sun come out and the hope for a summer in some places across the world. And up where I am in Canada, it was an awful winter, really long and very cold at night, very cold in the minus 30s, 40s most of the time and vastly underreported by the, the media because uh, even the weather stations, there were always 10 or 15 degrees uh, higher than what it actually was. And most folk wouldn't even think of checking with using their own temperature gauges, etc. In this day and age, they look at to their smartphones or listen to the news and they have no question, of course, to, to, to question why would they be getting disinformation? But again, it fits in with the whole idea, you understand, of global warming. And that's how complete the system is, because the system must have mind control, which is, a, again, vastly underreported uh, technique, because it's used on such a daily basis from a thousand sources uh, that you pick up through media and what you think is information, uh, even direct information from experts, etc., especially from experts, you take what they, what they say for granted, and why should you question them? You're not paranoid. If you did question them, they might call you paranoid, but you really understand, in the system we're in today, it's a complete reinventing of society. It's a system of completely reinventing politics that's already been done and government too, completely reinvented. And they talked about this back in the, the 60s and 70s in the big organizations, constant foreign relations and uh, the various groups all work together towards a common goal because really they're all interrelated. The Macy group during World, and after World War II, Frankfurt School and so on, they were all interrelated with politics and changing attitudes and reinventing government. And now they'll call it even reinventing governance. It kind of throws you off. Brzezinski himself talked about it, uh, about the need to completely shape a whole new system for people to believe in. And, of course, you'd be told what to believe in, and they wouldn't. Just, well, just like a corporation, a corporation uh, has a policy. The policy is, here's what we're here for, here's what you do. And you speak the party line in, in the company you work for, and you can't deviate from it, or you're, you're radical and you're kicked out. It's very simple. Well, that's how things are today in all of the institutions which give you what you think is your reality. They feed what you're supposed to believe to you, and you must believe it, or you're shunned by your peer group, or laughed at, or whatever, and by those who really believe what they're told all the time. Again, in a, a real normal society, which most folk think it is, uh, there's no reason to question it. Why would anybody be trying to do you in, so to speak, or to control or manipulate you? Aren't you free? And again, just put a poll out there and ask people what they would define freedom to be, and you'd be astonished at the answers you get. One woman said years ago in a poll that she, she, of course she was free, she could go shopping any time she wanted in New York City and, and buy anything she wanted. That was freedom to her. So, so never take it for granted that everyone thinks the same way as you do, because they really don't. And hit certain topics and you'll see how well conditioned people are today by the Pavlovian responses that immediately kick in when you mention certain terms and words and so on. 
It's a complete overall indoctrination that everyone's had. And like all big uh, organizations that run the world, the societies and agencies that run us, all working together on the same course, same goals, and all the rest of it, and their own specialized departments, must put it across in a certain way using public relations, psychologists, behaviorists, and all the rest of it, and present it on television, for instance, and in news bites as though it's a spontaneous answer they're giving you to something. Nothing is further from the truth. An interview on television with any person of consequence is it takes months to arrange. It takes back and forth of letters of questions to be asked or the person who's going to be interviewed wants to be asked along with a list of things he will not answer and not to, not to be touched upon by the interviewer. So that's how, how things are very misleading to the general population. Uh, but they get it, as, as I say, in, in little sound bites and think, well, spontaneous. He's a he's fast quip and he doesn't realize that fast quip could have teams of psychologists and behaviorists and so on to work on uh, to get that just right. That, that's how perfect the system is today. Up into the 1950s, students at university were given a fairly good education at the time. It was much cheaper, of course, then too, and universities weren't such a massive corporate business as they are today, uh, especially in the, the North America. But you'd found, you found that the, the youngsters who went into university back then came out with pretty well the same values and traditions as their parents had. That was changed drastically during the 1960s. And they came out with uh, uh, new ideas, supposedly. And they were taught in university that their parents were old-fashioned, outdated, etc. And they were much smarter than their parents. The left-wing side also used the communist tactics of trying to separate the generations to create a new generation. Even songs came out about our generation, things like that. So it was all to divide in order to, to completely indoctrinate a brand new generation into advocating all the things that we're getting brainwashed to advocate for without ever knowing the real reasons behind it, think, but thinking that they did. When you're young, you really are pretty stupid. You really are. I've been young, you know. I, I know exactly what it's like. Uh, but most folk do believe what they're told. I didn't. I, was always, I always questioned things. I had to find out for myself what was behind things and so on. And it's quite easy to detect the United Nations non-governmental organizations and foundations, NGOs, non-profit organizations, heavily funded, behind so much of it. And I thought, well, no one votes for the United Nations. It's not democratic. All of the groups and NGOs are not democratic either. They're, they're just like corporate mandates that they have, and, or the communist line. They have to spout exactly what the leaders say. And I mean exactly, and accept all the leaders say on all different topics and so on. And that's what was happening. We found unelected bodies were, were changing how we view the world, society, your country, governments, and so on. And it worked awfully well. You must always get to the youth to change society. And then the polls they do every year with all the, the sort of taboo topics uh, they bring up uh, and ask their opinions on things. And it's so easy now to see the transformation intergenerationally, even within five years of each other, basically. A university, the same studies taken across the world. What do they think of this, that, and so on? And it's, it's always completely the new normal which the youth are brainwashed into going for. They'll think everything's okay, blah, blah, blah. 
and there are no taboos at all, really, except anyone else with a different opinion than themselves is taboo. Therefore, it's quite easy to create armies of compliant and even people who advocate the agenda and work towards the agenda in their daily lives in different professions or jobs or whatever without even knowing they're being used. Massive psychology goes in to running the world. And statements were made years ago, in, especially in the United States, which at least has more media, although they're all controlled as well today. But in the past, they had a lot more independent media, and they reported on, on things which the mainstream would often uh, be told and be compliant and not put things in the, the paper for the public to read. But some independent ones did. And they talked to some of the bigwigs of the time that were change agents, and that's what they're called, change agents. Professors are also change agents. And Brzezinski was quite open when he was a professor in his old days where he, he saw the world going, and that's why the Trilateral Commission picked him up and give him the, one of the top positions to help change the world. So you have this distinction between going from university into government exactly the same way as corporations have put their guys and, uh, from, from corporate CEOs into government and back again, back and forth, this ping-pong back and forth, to blur the distinctions of public and private. And that came into eventually what was called public-private partnerships. It was actually said by one of the bigwigs that a long time ago uh, that they would carry on the American tradition of blurring government and and uh, private, uh, completely blur it together until the average citizen would not be able to tell the difference. And that's when they brought out public-private partnerships. These private parts or corporate parts of the partnership don't have to go through the branches of government to get their policies in. And yet the government, again, works hand in glove with them and gives them the power to make their own policies and then gives them the contracts to contract to the general public. It's just the same as healthcare, things like that. Therefore, they're not accountable to the general public or to any votes in order to stop what they're doing. They won't do it. They don't have to, basically. It's quite easy, isn't it? But most folk don't realize what they're living through. Even when you're living through it, uh, many of the young, actually, who are not so brainwashed, and many of them don't even go to university, uh, they can think for themselves or question things for themselves without that little inner voice kicking in, oh, this professor said this, that professor said that. And, and they don't have the same Pavlovian conditioning responses that's brainwashed and thumped into them at university. So they can question things more, with more clarity and less taboo on the subject. They're simply taken care of if they do get into any position of communicating with the general public, of being massively bombarded with uh, hate mail or something like that, or ridiculed, and so on and so on. Uh, every, everyone's basically managed today. Any situation is managed and when you try to do something, you will be you will be attacked mightily. And no matter how small a position you have, in fact, you'll be attacked mightily. In fact, it surprised a lot of people when they start off is why are so many folk interested in taking them down? It really is quite amazing, isn't it? And most folk will never think well about that. Where's all the money come from for 
what you think is small groups here and there across the world attacking somebody's because of what they're saying. Where's all this money come from? Who sets the policies and whom to attack and all the rest of it? So you got to wake up to the fact at least, at least that the world is not the way that is presented to you from birth onwards. It's vastly different and your thoughts are simply parts of someone else's agenda that you've adopted thinking it's your own and nothing is further from the truth. We've been living under this for a long, long, long time, the system of mind control, really, uh, because you're, you, you become what you're taught to believe in all different topics. Bertrand Russell wrote a couple of good books on it. In fact, he was a big player in this. And one of them was called uh, The Impact of Science on Society. Uh, the other one was called um, The Scientific Outlook. And in it, he talked about his ability if he wanted to, to make children believe anything that he told them. And he had been given permission in Britain to run an experimental school at one time to really test out his theories on unsuspecting young children. And he said it was very easy, in fact, using this, the, the proper controls and scientific indoctrination techniques to make them believe anything. If he wanted, he said, you could raise a generation to believe that snow was actually black. Uh, and, if, and in fact, in other words, what he was saying is you could literally isolate people from the rest. For instance, if you did have a, a, a bunch of schools all teaching, for instance, that snow is black, to them what they said would be perfectly normal and, and understandable. And it's simply changing the meaning of a word. They'd see it with, and, and it looked to them the same way as you would see it, but they would call it black. Uh, and, of course, it'd have a different name for, for whites. In other words, you can really be taught not to communicate with other people outside the group. And you don't know that they've been taught. You think they're all crazy by what they're saying and, and why aren't they using the proper terminology? After all, you're using the, the proper terminology. And then that creates confusion, and you can't pass the information on. This technique is really heavily researched into communication studies and how to isolate groups, even whole populations if need be, from action, any kind of action that would upset the apple cart for this big, massive train called the agenda, run by, again, trilateralists, and concerned foreign relations, all the same group, really just a different wing of them for a different purpose, and uh, the big banks at the top, the finance, all the NGO groups, etc., with the proper policies to indoctrinate others and to advocate uh, that laws get changed to make things happen, this plan by academia way above them. So it's not complicated at all. You're simply looking at a system, a system. It's not complicated. And every branch of the system have, has its own part to play in making all of this happen. And it's done awfully well today and pretty, pretty smoothly as well. Most folk, when they hear inconsistencies, simply blotted out their heads rather than think about them. And then when it's clarified down the road by those at the top who've caught it themselves, uh, then they'll accept the new policy or new explanation of the consistency. Without question. 
Now, I've talked a lot about CG and the United Nations branches, etc., that are running many of the policies across the world. Again, policies don't go through government, remember. Government can advocate a different or create different agencies, private agencies, to handle certain areas of work. Again, public-private partnerships and all the rest of it. And then the corporations that run these agencies simply says, our policy, you must do this and you must do that. And you have nowhere to complain to, you see. Government will simply say, well, it's not. We don't run them. They're an agency. We hire them, but we can't interfere with their policies. Therefore, you get a blurring of policy and law. And that's, of course, what's been happening for years, especially in the United States. And some people have caught on to it. Many have not. That That's the confusion part of it all, is that policies now have replaced what used to be constitution and laws, etc. Now getting back to CG, and CG is based in other countries apart from Canada, but Canada is the one it's known about more so than others. They have different names for some of them, of course, in different countries. And again, it's the, the, the bringing of academia into uh, managing the populations and all the things that populations need, for instance, different laws, governance, as they call it, in all different areas. In fact, CG helped even uh, draft up uh, all the stuff on the environment for the provinces of Ontario to put forth to the federal government for the big vote that comes along, which would be implemented on reducing carbon, etc. So a private organization, again, the blurring of government and private, has been awfully successful. Most folk don't question CG at all. But it's the Centre for International Governance Innovation, as they call themselves. And that sounds very important and very official, but again, it's a private organization. Don't forget that. And it has all this swing in power in government. And it says here that development of sustainability and green banking regulations, existing codes and practices. This is from their own website. It says interest in sustainable and green financial regulations. That's all how, how you control through green financial regulations. Even how you live down your, your home. Can you even keep that home? Is it, is it eco-friendly? Is it, uh, is it properly insulated? Uh, if you can't afford to insulate it properly, you'd be eventually down the road, you'd be kicked off it. That's coming shortly, actually. With the next big push, the United Nations. And it says, interest in sustainable and green financial regulations has grown in recent years due in part to increasing climate change risks for the financial sector alongside a need to integrate this sector into the green economy. So once again, you have private business that, that of f- financial businesses, which really is at the top of the pyramid, and academia underneath them. And then these NGOs, like this one I'm talking about here. And it's Agenda 21, or the Millennium Project and Sustainable Development. It's all the same thing, different terms for the same thing to confuse the public. A system designed to completely, from birth to death, regulate the whole the way of living uh, for every single individual from birth to death. What you can, can't do, and all the rest of it. And it says... Introducing a regulative approach would be a significant departure from the voluntary codes of conduct that banks currently rely on to integrate sustainability issues into their business. However, integration of sustainability aspects into financial regulations domestically and internationally could be a strong driver 
for achieving a transition to a sustainable economy. The experience of developing and emerging countries such as China, Brazil, Bangladesh, Nigeria, where regulatory approaches have already been implemented, can be a crucial source of learning for industrialized countries. This paper examines how sustainability has gone from the fringes of corporate decision-making to the Bank of England's recent call to analyze climate change-related risks for the insurance sector, infection insurance, the emergence of environmental and social governance. Again, these organizations have grafted themselves on to government departments. Emergence of environmental and social governance are also in the private sector, in banks and the rise of sustainable financial regulations. The existing financial uh, regulations with seven developing and emerging countries are explored as are ways in which sustainability can be integrated into financial regulations globally. Financial regulations globally. Now, who's at the top of the, the, the tree here in the banking systems set up by the Council on Foreign Relations a long time ago? Royal Institute for International Affairs, same organization. Uh, they set up the Bank for International Settlements. Carol Quigley, their own historian, for their own version of history, since they've been behind so much of it for over 100 years, said that they set it up themselves, they set up the IMF, they set up the various institutions that are global financial systems that we all pay money into for debts and all the rest of it. But But it says here, financial regulations globally, and this is affected all the way you live and all the rest of it down the road, you see. So you understand that this is all interrelated to how they're going to manage you, uh, right down to economics, complete economics. And there'll be penalties too, galore for the individual, if you break any of the rules along the way. This other article says fixing climate governance. Uh, it says um, climate scientists agree that human activity, again, who cares what they agree to? Because they're using computer models which are designed to give them bad news. In fact, they don't even have factor the sun into any of their climate models, the effects of the sun on the planet or warming or anything else. Climate scientists agree that human activity, so sure fault, has been changing our planet's climate over the long term. Without serious policy changes, scientists expect devastating consequences in many regions uh, inundation of coastal cities, that's supposed to have happened years ago, according to them, but never happened, of course. Greater risk to food production, enhanced malnutrition, unprecedented heat waves, greater risk of high-intensity cyclones, many climate refugees, and irreversible loss of biodiversity. Some international relations scholars expect increased risk of violent conflicts over scarce resources due to state breakdown. Environmentalists, again, this is a different section of humanity. Apparently, they're born into special wombs and they call themselves environmentalists. Have been campaigning, that's all the NGOs, for, effectively, for, uh, for effective policy changes for more than two decades. And they're all paid to do it. The world's governments have been negotiating since 1995 as parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. These talks have not yet produced agreements that are sufficiently effective in curbing greenhouse gas emissions or helping the world adapt to climate impacts. Some effort has shifted to partial measures by national governments, provinces, cities, and private companies, which together also fall far short of the need identified by science so far. And here we go into uh, 
the Fixing Climate Governance Project. Again, it's a private organisation, but sometimes it is government, doesn't it? It's designed to generate some fresh ideas. First, a public forum was held in November, and the link is on this article, which will pop tonight. High-level workshops then developed a set of policy briefs and short papers, the roundtable idea from CFR, written by experts. Again, who are these experts? They're all in the payroll, these, these organizations. Several of these publications offer original concrete recommendations for making the United Nations FCCC more effective. Others make new proposals on such topics as how to reach agreements among smaller sets of countries, how to address the problems of delayed benefits from mitigation and concentrated political opposition, ways that China can exercise leadership in this arena, and how world financial institutions can help mobilize climate finance from the private sector. These CG publications appear in chronological order of development below. And the, the links are all on there of their, 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 what they've planned to do. You see how they implement all these different policies. They're more bureaucratic, in a sense, than, than your own national governments are, even the way they speak and all the rest of it. And it sounds, when you read them, of course, there's no, there's no margin of, of error in anything they say. There's definitely no space to argue any points in what they say. It's their policy, policy, policy. Uh, for instance, it says United Nations climate deal should create policy options menu to increase ambition. Oh, really, to increase ambition, says first CG paper in New Climate Series. It even says in, in a climate change agreement to be adopted at COP21 in December. And you could eat in a whole bunch of encyclopedias for all the anachronisms that they use. It says, should include a menu of policy options that can facilitate and incentivize increased ambition over time. This is the key recommendation, the first policy brief issued under the Center for International Governance Innovation, again, CG, Fixing Climate Governance Series. And as I repeat that last part, this is the key recommendation in the first policy brief. So this is the policy. You understand? And when they get that out, this brief, as it tells all their other members, this is the policy. Don't vary off this policy in whatever you say in response to any questions asked you. And then policy options could increase ambition. Economy-wide targets for emissions reductions will be an indispensable element of a 2015 agreement. This is going to be the big one, folks. The, the big stick is the power of the purse on all of you to make you comply. It says, but reaching agreement on ambitious targets is notoriously difficult. But why is it difficult? The public don't just simply obey, you know. They're, they have this old-fashioned notion that they've got rights and things. So the agreement needs to include a, me- a mechanism that can facilitate and incentivize increased ambition over time. I love the terminology they use. Incentivize increased ambition, right? Such a mechanism should focus on high-potential policy options that contribute to the same general goal, Again, climate change mitigation, that's an excuse for, for managing your whole way that you're going to live, is climate change mitigation. And it has other links here on other articles that they've put up and so on, which you can look up yourselves. I'll, I'll put the main one up and you can take it all off the main one. Another one here is called Think20. It's T20. So it's, that's what that means, T20. Most of what we see the T20 
and they'll hear about the, those who convene it. Oh, the T20 had, had this meeting there. And folk aren't have a clue what it is. Think 20 it is. Uh, conveners present Ottawa meeting outcomes for the G20 consideration. So again, the private organization, run by the big global private organization, Trilaterals, you know, and the CFR, who own the United Nations, by the way, who set it up. Uh, anyway, it says, uh, it's like they're going to make the policies for your governments. Can you go up to the government and make your policy for them? Of course not. You're not authorized to. You think you're free and you've got rights and all that. No, you don't. It says, uh, developed under the, the May 15, 2000. So it says, developed under the joint responsibility of the Center for International Governance Innovation, again, it's a private organization, CG. And by the way, they're also into the, the, your internet uh, regulations for the world too. This private organizations set the standards and what you, what you can and can't do and all the rest of it. It says, and the Economic Policy Research Foundation of Turkey, well, you, all know, you, you didn't know what TPAV meant, right? TPAV is the Economic Policy Research Foundation of Turkey, TPAV. As conveners of the T20 Ottawa Conference held May 3rd to 5th, 2015, the following summary is offered on the outcomes of the meeting and recommendations for the G20, for your governments, ahead of the G20 summit in uh, Antalya, Turkey, in November of this year. Conference co-hosted by CG and TEPA focused on Turkey's G20 agenda, more specifically international monetary and financial cooperation. Well, you know, you pay for all cooperation through your taxes that's given away them. Among the many observations and perspectives presented during the meeting, the following is a summary of key recommendations the T20 convener submits for consideration. In other words, this is the marching orders for your politicians uh, by the 2015 G20 president in Turkey. Number one, enhance inclusivity of G20 membership. So it's to do with expansion for that part of it, including Africa. Representation by Africa. Broaden the G20's role and agenda to address current and emerging global issues. Expand the G20's leadership role, the reason for being, and priorities to address more universal issues with potential for wide-scale economic implications, while simultaneously maintaining a realistic level of ambition, this ambition again, to support acutely relevant challenges in the world today. Examples of priorities under an expanded agenda include climate change, addressing environmental and sustainability risks through financial regulatory reforms, two, internet governance, there you go, to address global economic impacts of cybercrime on economies. It's not just cybercrime, folks. Human- they also actually help to set up what should be what the average individual should be watched for on all their communications, by the way, under the terrorism. This private organization. Humanitarian issues and the role of multilateral organizations, all the other NGOs, and so on. Strengthen multilateral institutions. So give them more power, these private organizations and NGOs. Implement the 2010 IMF reform package to give more voice to developing and underrepresented economies that have failed to be ratified by the U.S. Congress. Consider an international treaty for the Financial Stability Board to make it more effective and legitimate. To make it more effective and legitimate. So it's not really legitimate. So make it legitimate. Pass a law, make it legitimate. Right? Focus on mobilizing and supporting multilateral international institutions. 
such as what? All the organizations created by the Royal Institute for International Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations, same organization, uh, and Trilateral Commission, all the same group, you see. Such as the World Trade Organization, set up by, again, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, so that's a part of the United Nations, so again, set up by the Royal Institute for International Affairs. World Health Organizations, again, United Nations, and the Office of the United Nations High Commissioners for Refugees. They can play a leadership role to address global priorities and crises with potential, uh, with potentially far-reaching impacts such as the Ebola outbreak, climate change, and Mediterranean refugee crisis. Number four, formalize the role and expectations of the G20. The T20 will proceed with depth and determination in its role as a G20 agenda-setting steering committee and global ideas bank, right? A steering committee. It says, uh, for a global ideas bank that works to bring forward meaningful and informed recommendations that help shape the agendas of the G20 annual presidencies and ultimately the annual leaders' summits. Did you vote for any of these leaders? Of course not. Help bridge the gap between the technical governance community and the general public in the highlighting and prioritizing of economic challenges and opportunities with global impact for G20 consideration. Hold the G20 accountable for its annual commitments through vigilant observation and rigorous research. Other priorities highlighted by the T20 group, an international agreed framework to manage severe sovereign debt crisis. So again, financial. Understand this is all governance and all departments of government. It's everything that's over you controlling your life and to be micromanaged in the very near future. Global imbalances and the role of central banks and financial regulatory agencies in international macroeconomic and financial cooperation. Completing and enhancing international financial reforms, including too big to fail, shadow banking and derivatives markets. Completing and enhancing international financial reforms, including too big to fail. This is global implementation of and the sourcing of high quality projects for the G20 Brisbane 2014 commitment to deliver two more percentage points in global growth by 2018. Addressing the G20's partial duplication of roles with international bodies such as the IMF's International Monetary and Financial Committee, enhancing special drawing rights in a reformed international monetary system. Special drawing rights, eh? The T20 Ottawa conference was conducted under Chatham House Rules. That's the headquarters for the Royal Institute for International Affairs, the private organization. Emphasizing inclusiveness. <laughs> Who's included here? With no comments officially attributed to individual participants. So this private organization has set up all these other organizations with all its front uh, groups through tax-free charitable foundations that finance all the armies of NGOs working for it, uh, won't publish who says, says what at their big meetings. That, that's always been the Chatham House rules. Plus, they can't talk to the public. It's all, done. It's all secretive, folks. And you all say you're free. 
And you don't vote for these guys. And the top bankers are all members too. So his next steps, CG will produce a final report by the end of May 2015 on the final outcomes. It will be made available and it gives you the cgonline.org website. In November, TPAV, that's the Turkish one, will host the G20 Summit in Antalya at the margins of the G20 Leaders Summit to bring together thought leaders from around the world, thought leaders on issues related to global governance, global governance folks, and to launch a global policy dialogue program, platform. Do you realize that your whole concept of what you live in, your world, your countries, is completely obsolete, and it's been obsolete for a long time? A long time, folks. Long, long time. And what you think you're living under has vastly changed. And these think tanks and private groups and so on set the policies for your little lackeys, the politicians, who also know that their role is to agree with everything and do what they're told. Uh, and they set the, the, the whole agendas for them all to push through your governments. And you don't vote for these private organizations. You don't even know who runs them. Most folk are completely oblivious of what they are. They still really believe they're politicians because they get the politicians' little sound bites on television and photo ops and so on, and they think it's all real. So, it's just astonishing. I guess I see the Center for International Governance Innovation, CG, and this is how they describe themselves, is an independent, non-partisan think tank on international governance led by experienced practitioners and distinguished academics. Did you vote for it? No, of course not. It's an independent, non-partisan think tank who makes policies for government along with the ones from the CFR and the Trilateral Commission members. See, All private organizations that are really part wings of the same organization. CG supports research, forms, networks, advances policy debates, and generates ideas for multilateral governance improvements. By the way, everything that they push out there is given to the trilateral members who, are, who put themselves into government when it suits them. And they then, all the members in the different countries, write, draft all this stuff up to get put through your bills in government, your parliaments. And it's done without question. But it all comes from private organizations. CG was founded in 2001 by Jim Balsilli, then CEO of Research in Motion, Blackberry Company, and collaborates with uh, and gratefully acknowledges support from a number of strategic partners, including, including the government of Canada. So your government also collaborates with them and probably gives them financial assistance too. And the government of Ontario uh, gives you more information and so on. And it goes into the Economic Policy Research Foundation of uh, Turkey. Again, a non-partisan, non-profit think tank based in Ankara, Turkey. It was founded in 2004 by a group representing business, government and academia. It's the other branch, the CFR for Turkey. Isn't that amazing? eh? It's it's just all in your face if you want to look for it. And folk will still want, don't want if, even if, if oh, the, the leaders came to your door and says, we're running your country, the general population wouldn't want to believe them because they feel safe and secure with their usual faces on TV, the politicians that they're kind of more used to. 
They say, no, I don't want you to believe that. It's, it's too scary. It's been that all your lives, folks. It didn't just happen uh, in your lifetime, all of this. Another one, too, uh, I'll put up tonight is climate change mitigation. It's quite a little interesting article to do with, uh, again, all the scientists uh, working towards mitigating, mitigating climate change. It includes international cooperation, emissions trading for the big banks and all the rest of it, yada, yada, yada. All, again, done by the United Nations groups, like the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, private organization. Also, this one here uh, is quite, quite interesting. It says, a new federal emergency management agency policy requiring U.S. states to address climate change before they can become eligible for grant funding is drawing fire from congressional Republicans. So once again, here's a big stick, financial, to meet and implement policies made drafted up uh, initially by private organizations, all working as a big cooperative group from Chapman House and so on. The regulations part of a FEMA state mitigation plan review guide issued last month are not set to take effect until next March, but lawmakers are demanding an explanation for the rules now. And it says, uh, in alert to FEMA, Administrator W. Craig uh, Fugate, or Fugate, the lawmakers said that they're concerned that the agency's decision will create unnecessary red tape for the disaster preparedness process. As you know, disaster mitigation grants are awarded to state and local governments after a presidential major disaster declaration. They wrote, these funds are crucial in help to help disaster-stricken communities prepare for future emergencies. The letter was signed by senators, and it gives the names Jim Inhofe, uh, Vitter, Barrasso, uh, Cochrane, Fisher, uh, Cassidy, and Lankford. In the revised guide, the agency said mitigation planning regulation requires consideration of the probability of future hazards and events to reduce risks and potential dangers. Past occurrences are important to a factual basis of hazard risk, however, the challenges posed by climate change, such as more in, again, it's climate change, right? More intense storms, frequent heavily precipitation, heat waves, drought, extreme flooding, and higher sea levels. Again, old United Nations stuff, you know. Could significantly alter the types and magnitudes of hazards impacting, impacting states in the future, said FEMA. But in their letter, the senator said climate change is still being debated setting gaps in the scientific understanding around climate change. And sure enough, it's not gaps, they're massive chasms. They're chasms, folks. Massive. But when it must be presented to manage the world and to, to obey as though it's all fact, you see. And it says, the letter goes on to ask FEMA to explain which statutory authority, and that's what they should be doing, the agency relied on to require states to consider climate change. This is all I do if you, if you don't consider it, and then just go along with it all, you ain't going to get your grants, folks, or your help when it's needed. This is where or not the agency still agrees with its 2012 statements that hurricanes follow a cycle of increased and decreased activity over decades and how much will it cost to comply with a new requirement. Now, on to... Warning over aerosol climate fix. That's the geoengineering chem sprays they've been getting for years. That they pretend they're only thinking about and so on. 
even though they've been doing it for years. And this is it's a warning over aerosol climate fix. Any attempts to engineer the climate are likely to result in different climate change rather than its elimination, new results suggest. Professor Can Caldera of Stanford University presented research at a major conference on climate risks and impacts of geoengineering. They've been studying impacts for years. They know what's doing in the public and wildlife and all the rest of it. These techniques have been hailed by some as a quick fix. But the impacts of the geoengineering on oceans, the water cycle on land environments are hotly debated. It kills a lot of trees off too. It comes down in the rain. They have been discussed at meetings this week of 12,000 scientists in Vienna, which you all paid for by folks. I mean, that's how it happens. Researchers are familiar with the global cooling effects of volcanic eruptions seen both historically and even back into the deep past of the rock record. With this in mind, some here at the European Geosciences Union, did you know there's the unions for it now? General Assembly, United Nations, eh? European Geosciences Union General Assembly have been discussing the possible worldwide consequences of pumping sulphate aerosols into the stratosphere to attempt to reflect sunlight back into space and cool the planet. And it says maybe as much as 100 million tons of sulphur dioxide aerosols spread as a blanket around the globe, acting like a planetary sunshade. Uh, it says... Um, Global temperatures plummeted across America and Europe in 1816 after a volcano, which became as known as the year without a summer. I, have, I haven't had a summer here for years. It's a normal summer. It's been pouring rain, pouring rain. and It's great for the mosquitoes and the deer fly, but you can't work in it. Such global cooling processes, but managed in a geoengineering solution, have been touted by some as a possible mechanism to extricate the planet from its path towards a warmer future. Solar radiation management reduced stratospheric sulfate aerosols to dim the sun. Back in the 90s, once they started spraying heavily, the, 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 the different departments, including NOAA, came out with the records calling, and they called it global dimming was happening. They didn't know why. It's a mystery to them, of course. Uh, but uh, global dimming, you can look it up yourself. That's, that's how long been spraying us. Using a variety of climate models, uh, Ken Caldera from the Carnegie Institution of Science in, in Stanford, California, has invaded the likely consequences of such geoengineering on agriculture across the globe. And it says, his research showed that while dimming could rapidly de- decrease global temperatures, high CO2 levels would be expected to persist. And it's the balance between temperatures, CO2 and sunlight that affects plant growth and agriculture. Exploring the regional effects, he finds that a stratospherically dim world would show increased plant productivity in the tropics, but lessened plant growth across the northern latitudes of America, Europe, and Asia. So it's easy to see how there might be a, a geopolitical shifts associated with changes in regional food production across the globe. It's probably the poor tropics that stand to benefit and the rich north that stands to lose, he said. But what if geoengineered sulfur aerosols were nonetheless deployed, which they have been, of course, they can't tell you outright in case you start suing them for all the deaths it's caused. But it says, and then a large volcanic eruption like Pinatubo in the Philippines took place. Three such eruptions occurred in the last century, so the scenario seems likely. So in other words, if they're already causing global dimming right by spraying you like bugs from the sky, uh, and you get added on uh, some volcanic eruptions, you could end up with global freezing. And... Uh, Hanel uh, Korhonen of the Finnish Meteorological Institute suggests that climate impacts could then be quite unexpected. 
Her results indicate increased temperatures in the southern ocean and in northerly latitudes as well as the mid-Pacific, but cooling in African and Asian mid-latitudes. Regional weather patterns would still change as it did after Tambora in 1816 with similar widely felt disruption. Deploying solar radiation management methods would lead to a completely new climate state with enhanced greenhouse effect and reduced solar radiation. There are great uncertainties related especially to the regional climate impacts of solar radiation management. Commenting on the results, Helen Murray of the University of Oslo said, These modelling experiments have highlighted the new risks associated with solar radiation management. The safest option is, of course, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and aim for a more sustainable way of living and managing the planet. You see, all this ties in with CG, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Uh, Technocracy, by the way, is is a system they're using, and it's a system technocracy. For those who don't know, it's going way back to the 1930s, you know, of managing every, every individual on the planet economically in every other way. And and in fact, that was the group that came out initially, the Rockefeller took over, uh, that came out for the first time and says they must manage the uh, uh, ecology uh, and uh, the nature and the environment and the atmosphere back in the 30s. And they haven't stopped their their, their goals since then. And here they are pushing for a more sustainable way of living and managing the planet. Less people, that's an obvious goal of it all. And having you freeze to death in the colder places because you, you might be able to heat yourself because it'll give off CO2, whatever fuel you're using. It says it's not at all obvious what other consequences of global geoengineering approaches might be. For example, Patrick Applegate from Pennsylvania State University reported that solar radiation management may yet fail to prevent sea levels from melting ice sheets, which respond on much longer timescales than the temperature effects of solar shielding. And it's so amazing to me when they put up major supposed studies and so on on, say, the poles and talk about them melting, and then they fail to mention the fact they've been thicker than ever during the winter, and the big clumps of ice that fall into the sea happen every year by naturally, because they're like overhanging sheets, and they fall down, fall off and break off and into the sea. That's what they've always done that, folks. It's all a scam. To manage and control and give power to private organizations that run the world. Already, they actually already do it. And they go on to say that um, climate geoengineering could not offer a long-term solution. Well, it will kill most of the people off eventually. With the world eventually being in the same place by 2200s, it would reach uh, without any geoengineering interventions. Now, they also have think tanks assigned through universities and various things to put articles out to the public using psychology, and they admit this, to find ways of bending your mind into going along with their policies. And one of the big ones is called, um, it's called um, PLAWS One. PLAWS is the big publishing group and so on. And it's called uh, Hand in Hand, Public Endorsement of Climate Change Mitigation and Adaptation. It says, uh, the research investigate how the individual's endorsements of mitigation and adaptation relate to each other. This is how you react to it all, you see, presently. And how well each of these can be accounted for by relevant social psychological factors. 
based on survey data from two European convenience samples, we found that public endorsements of mitigation and adaptation are strongly associated. Someone who is willing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, mitigation, is also willing to prepare for climate change impacts, adaptation, what you can, can't do, and all the rest of it. Moreover, people endorsed the, uh, the two response strategies for similar reasons. People who believe, again, it's not in belief, you see, that climate change is real and dangerous, who have positive attitudes about protecting the environment and the climate, and who perceive climate change as a risk, are willing to respond to climate change. So the ones who've already been brainwashed will go along with it. Furthermore, distinguishing between spatially uh, proximal and distant risk percent, uh, perceptions suggests that the idea of portraying climate change as a proximal, that is, local threat, might indeed be an eff- effective in promoting personal action. So tell me your local area is going to be in a massive drought for 10 years and you're all going to die. It's going to make you go along with what they're saying. It's going to terrify you. However, to gain endorsement of broader societal initiatives such as policy support, it seems advisable to turn to the distant risks of climate change. They're very distant indeed. The notion that localizing climate change might not be the panacea for engaging people in this domain is discussed in regard to previous theory and research. You see, if you think it's all worldwide, you think it was too big for my mind to comprehend the worldwide, I'm okay here. Now, make, terrify the people where they are, right here, and they'll go along with what you're, you, you want them to go along with. So they're studying uh, through surveys and polls and the rest of it if, if their indoctrination is working. And all the age groups too, the ones coming out of school now are totally brainwashed and believe it all, uh, etc. And it shows you too uh, where the funding comes from. The study conducted in Switzerland was partly supported by the Social Psychology Division of the Otto von Gurich University at Magdeburg, Germany. Adrian Brugger was res- uh, supported by a doctoral fellowship from the Climate Change and Sustainable Futures. This is all sustainable. I guess this is the Agenda 21, folks. Theme at the University of Exeter. Uh, Suraj Desai is supported by the European Research Council under the Seventh Framework Program. And it gives you the names of the programs. And... Um, and by the UK Economic and Social Research Council uh, for the Centre for Climate Change, Economics and Policy. The founders, uh, the funders have no role in study design, data collection and analysis, decision to public or preparation for, of the manuscript. So try to distance themselves from the funders. It's the same of big corporations and your tax money given by government without your permission to them as well uh, to, to, to do all this study on you. And it says, to respond to the challenges posted or posed by climate change, societies around the world are faced with two related but separate strategies. Uh, the first strategy, mitigation, involves reducing the magnitude of future climate change by cutting greenhouse gas emissions, that is, reduction of energy consumption, and enhancing greenhouse gas sinks, that is, afforestation. Remember, too, that term to do with the uh, of, uh, reduction of energy consumption under uh, technocracy. 1930s, Rockefeller took it over, as I say, and incorporated it into all their big plans to take over the world. Eventually, you go into austerity, and energy units would replace money. They were a form of credits. And Bertrand Russell was a member of the group, too. He was a member of all the big groups. He was a massive player in all of this. And... He said that eventually, every week you get so much starting off in your bank account, 
uh, and if you hadn't spent it by the end of the week and, the, and it was due for refilling your bank account with these credits, uh, they'd simply eliminate the old ones, they'd just disappear, and you have the same amount every week, so you couldn't save up to keep you in a, f- a form of poverty. You see? So that this is the technique by this group that, that became the mandate for the planet because the big bankers jumped on top of it, the Rockefellers and so on. So however, because the planet is already committed to a certain level of climate change, it's also important to prepare for and deal with the negative consequences of climate change, such as protecting coastal zones from sea level rise, which hasn't happened, of course, as well as taking advantage of the positive consequences of climate change. That's the growing, such as growing wine in regions that were previously too cold for that purpose. Where I'm sitting here, in northern Ontario, this could be the new Florida. I'm, I'm sitting in a gold mine. I don't even know. If I can lift up a hundred or maybe a hundred thousand years, I might see it. Right? I doubt that. Anyway, uh, implementing the response strategies, however, is challenging, not least because it requires endorsement for, uh, from the general public. Here's a mind control again. And just like the, what the Club of Rome came out with in the 1970s, the book called The Global First Global Revolution, where they admitted that getting a way to control all humanity and get them to obey this new system of academic and expert uh, management over their lives, instead of voting and having rights and all the rest of it, because democracy didn't work, they said, um, would, it would take some time. Uh, it's, it's all here. It's the same agenda all down through the last hundred years. And it goes on to say here that, uh, yeah, it's, it's a nuisance having the public, ha- you know, having to go along with things. It's, just, it's a nuisance. Endorsement from the general public, having democracy, it just has to go. If public endorsement is weak and priorities lie elsewhere, then unpopular mitigation and adaptation measures will meet resistance. That's like taking your land off you, kicking out your home because it's not thermally up to their standards or whatever it happens to be. And, and you can't afford the taxes. You'd be rather peeved, to say the least. Understanding how members of the public view mitigation and adaptation is also important because the amount of individuals' greenhouse gas emissions, individuals, here, here you go, this is all supposed to go, it's not corporations, individuals' greenhouse gas emissions, and therefore the potential for emissions reductions is substantial. Individual motivation is also paramount in terms of adaptation. The responsibility for many adaptive responses entirely lies with individuals. In short, if mitigation and adaptation are to be successful, both as individual and collective, that's what they call you all to the masses or the collective uh, responses, it's important to understand what, what, what motivates people to endorse each of these strategies. Well, climate experts agree that, the, that both mitigation and adaptation are necessary. Currently, there is little knowledge about the relationship between people's endorsement of mitigation and their endorsement of adaptation. Because they haven't had the riots yet, when they, they started to kick you out in the street. Conceptually, three relationships between mitigation and adaptation can be postulated. So they must always go into the future and see how you're going to react to things and offset them by psychological programs made in advance of them even introducing it to your knowledge. One, a negative relationship where the public considers mitigation and adaptation as competing alternatives. That is, people favor either mitigation or adaptation and discard the other. Number two, 
a positive relationship where people similarly endorse or oppose mitigation and adaptation. Or three, there is no systemic relationship between endorsements for mitigation and adaptation. The first possibility, a negative relationship between the two response strategies, mirrors how interest in mitigation and adaptation developed over time. Until recently, researchers and policymakers almost exclusively focused on mitigation. One of the reasons for the prioritizing of mitigation was that focusing on adaptation evoked negative associations such as being defeatist or not willing to act. Members of the public might take a similar stance and favor mitigation over adaptation. So the challenge, you might simply go along with the open admission of increased aerial spraying um, and say that I'll do, but uh, I don't have to do anything else personally. In addition to the historic uh, development, there is uh, an important difference between mitigation and adaptation that on their own could create a divide between endorsements of the two response strategies. The most striking difference is probably the temporal and spatial scale at which the two strategies work. Mitigation requires immediate action. That's, that's why they tell you, oh, you're going to die, you're going to die, you know. But due to the inertia of the climate system, it will take decades before mitigation efforts will show their benefits, such as decreasing the population, several dying off with bronchial infections. To illustrate it, it would take several decades before emission reduction stabilized the climatic changes that are already underway. In contrast, adaptation measures typically focus on short or medium term problems and often yield high immediate benefits, like making it mandatory to have your home inspected for thermal leaks and all the rest of it. Uh, and, and, and all these, these kind of things. You know. An example that illustrates, and stop you driving as well. An example that illustrates this is the upgrade of flood uh, defenses. This back to FEMA again. Once they're in place, they protect people to a higher uh, standard of flood risk. With regard to space, effective mitigation must be implemented globally because it's all a global agenda for world governance of everybody's lives from beginning to end. I would also have global benefits while adaptation of efforts and benefits are constrained to the regional or local level. There are a number of individual differences that could lead people to more strongly to, to more strongly support early versus late action or spatially proximal versus distant solutions. The, the extent to which people are attached to proximal versus dif, uh, distant places. Despite the historic development and contestable differences between mitigation and adaptation, a positive relation that, that is joint endorsement of or opposition to the two strategies is not implausible. After all, their common goal is to avoid negative consequences for the human and natural environment. If people's endorsements of mitigation and adaptation are guided by a broader perspective that integrates both strategies as a common response to threats. So your, your, your thoughts on it all, to be guided by, guess who, these guys, by a broader perspective that integrates both strategies as a common response to threats, so they're going to terrify you, associated with climate change, then people who endorse one strategy, for example, because of the value of nature, should also endorse the second strategy. We're all categorized already into what categories we belong to. Now remember, I'm talking about something here, which is a, a, a think tank again, and to get you to comply, how, how to get you to comply and all the studies they do in you constantly. It says, to date, few studies have empirically investigated the relationship between mitigation and adaptation in the public's mind. Well, that's not really quite true. 
Among these studies, two provide indirect evidence for a positive relationship, such as farmers who believed that anthropogenic climate change was happening were more likely to endorse mitigation and adaptation measures than farmers who were sceptical about climate change. It is, however, unclear to what extent these results apply to the general public. Yet a study conducted amongst homeowners who may be more comparable to the general public revealed similar findings. The more homeowners were aware of and concerned about climate change, this repetitive mantra over the media, the more money, here you go, more money that were they willing to pay for mitigation and adaptation measures. Yeah, really, yeah. Another study conducted with members of the general public found that the, two, the more people felt that climate change was a severe threat and the more they felt vulnerable, the more they were willing to mitigate. However, severity and vulnerability did not predict adaptation, suggesting that people endorsed the two strategies for different reasons and the relationship between mitigation and adaptation may be unsystematic. Overall, previous studies provide some evidence that specific groups, such as farmers and owners, endorse mitigation and adaptation strategies for similar reasons. However, very little is known about how the public relate the two strategies to each other. Against this backdrop, the aim of the present research is to further explore the relationship between endorsements of mitigation and adaptation by examining the correlations between different forms of mitigation and adaptation and by investigating people's motives to mitigate and to adapt. On this, to this end, we draw on a range of specific uh, motivational variables that have been identified in previous research on individual responses to climate change. And then it goes on about individuals' motivation to endorse climate and adaptation and how to overcome the scepticism and, and how they do it using psychology, etc. I'll put these up tonight, remember, but you understand the massive supra-governmental institution with all of its married branches set up a long time ago that you hadn't been told about that runs your world and the future as they ran the past. And I mean completely, folks. And you think you're living in reality. You really do think you're living in reality. That's quite something else. And uh, uh, it's just astonishing, absolutely astonishing. To finish this off, there's an article here, uh, and it's from Australia. It says, climate change, a United Nations-led ruse, says Tony, Tony Abbott's business advisor, Maurice Newman. I guess he's no member of the in-party, that guy. If they, see, to get into the, the big organizations at the top that run the world, most politicians sniff the wind and they know what not to ask and just go along with policies they're told about and re-advocate policies they don't understand. And they get up the ladder and they have a great career. Anyway, this, this Maurice Newman doubts the science and politics behind climate change. And um, this is Maurice Newman, chairman of Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council, has written in Australian newspaper that scientific modelling showing the link between humans and climate change is wrong and the real agenda is a world takeover for the United Nations. I guess he's done his homework. This is, this is not about facts or logic. It's about a new world order under the control of the United Nations. And environment minister who was paid to be on board with it, naturally, Greg Hunt, said Mr. Newman's position was not a view I have or would express. No, he certainly wouldn't. And... Um, it says Mr. Newman's column was written to coincide with an Australian visit by the head of the United Nations Framework on convention, of Convention on Climate Change. 
uh, Christiana Figueres. It follows a piece Mr. Newman wrote last year in which he said governments had been hijacked, and that's exactly right, it's actually true, by green gesture politics, and the world was not prepared for the problem of global cooling. It says it's a well-kept secret, but 95% of the climate models, we are told, prove the link between human CO2 emissions and catastrophic global warming have been found after nearly two decades of temperature stasis to be an error. It's not surprising, Mr. Newman wrote on Friday. And it's true enough, they won't publicize anything comes out that disproves the agenda. It's an agenda, folks. And the climate politics is the excuse for pushing the agenda through and controlling you all. This is why then, with such little evidence, does the United Nations insist the world spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year on futile climate change policies? Perhaps Christiana Figueres, Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework on Climate Change, has the answer. Mr. Newman continued that global warming was a hook to install a new world order. Well, that's exactly what the Club of Rome, the big think tank, they came out, out, out with a lot of the agenda, uh, and they were planning a lot of it, actually, for their masters, said in their own report. Figueres is on record saying democracy is a poor political system for fighting global warming. See, they don't believe in, in democracy. So this Figueres characters for the United Nations naturally is against uh, you having personal rights and opinions. Uh, columnist China, she says, is the best model. And that's what the United Nations has advocated. The communist China says no democracy, that you do what the government tells you or else, is the model state for the world. We've all to be copy. That's what the United Nations says. Remember, the United Nations is owned by the private group Royal Institute for International Affairs, who set it up. And its precursor, they set up two League of Nations. Um, it says, this is not about facts or logic, it's about a new world order under the control of the UN. He then urges the Abbott government to oppose a regime that was against capitalism and freedom by resisting uh, the next global climate treaty in Paris, which countries hope to reach in December. This is going to be the big stick, folks, and most of you won't be able to afford to drive once they've passed the laws and cutting CO2 and so on. Mr. Newman adds that, like Indian Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi, Mr. Abbott should resist the United Nations call for coal to stay in the ground. The vast majority of the world's scientists, including most of the world's scientific academies, agree humans are causing climate change. No, they don't. They don't, folks. That's, that's how they discredit anyone who speaks out. They don't. They have a select group of scientists, all well paid to go along with this agenda. Awfully well paid, I might add, too. Among them, the Academy of Science, the Bureau of Meteorology, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that's the United Nations again, say greenhouse gas emissions from human activity are affecting the climate. It's all your fault. It's anthropogenic. It's man-made, the climate, you see. Mr. Fer- Ms. Fergeris said during her visit this week that Australia would ultimately have to move far away from coal for both environmental and economic reasons. Mr. Newman is a former chairman of the ABC and Australian Securities Exchange. At a media conference in Australia's renewable energy target in Melbourne on Friday, Labour's environment spokesman Mark Butler was asked where the opposition thought Mr. Newman should stand down. So you speak out, you're done for, folks. And it's, a one, it's really a one-party system you're living in worldwide. It doesn't matter what they call themselves, left, right. It's a one-party system. You go, you go along with it or you've no work. I've never been particularly clear why Morris Newman holds the position he does hold given how central climate change 
is to the future economic prosperity of Australia, Butler said. As a senior business advisor, what Maurice Newman said in the Australian newspaper this morning is no different to the sorts of things we've been saying for years about this incredibly important policy. That ultimately, though, is a matter for the Prime Minister. Mr Hunt said the government's approach was to work constructively with all international parties. And he says, I met this week with Christina Figueres. Our goal is to be part of a constructive post-2020 agreement, Mr Hunt said. We want to address a problem. We're working with our countries, with international parties, and so on and so on. Mr Newman's other thoughts on climate change. And Mr Newman says, man-made carbon pollution has become the shorthand rallying cry that unites global warming believers. The, The notion is a figment. It's made up. It's rooted in anti-capitalism and anti-growth green ideology that for too long has been bullied into our consciousness as science. Back in the real world, the poor are dying of the cold while the political elites and their friends bask in the warmth of cosy conferences, taxpayer subsidies and research grants. They seem indifferent to the hardships that their actions based on dubious signs impose on the world's underprivileged. The political, political left has seized on climate change as a new Marxism. And that's no exaggeration, folks, because Brzezinski was picked and put into the, 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 the CFR and then pushed right up immediately as a, a, a pusher under the Trilateral Commission, a private group again, to push us through. And he said in his own, own writings when he was a professor, he said that it's America's blending with Marxism, he said, that creates the step for the next launching into the new world order of the combination, meaning no democracy uh, run on scientific principles, etc., etc., by experts. You see? So it rejects empirical evidence which is inconvenient and promotes dubious and sometimes fabricated science as proven. It's true totalitarian style seeks to shut down debates, absolutely, and ruin the careers and, and reputations of those who dare to oppose the orthodoxy. And that's a fact as well. This is Christine Mills' prescription for a vibrant Australian economy includes keeping the new renewable energy target at 41,000 gigawatt hours, stopping new coal mines, no coal, seam gas, and no new ports. Jobs will come from green energy. Yeah, what a joke that is. So anyway, um, it's, it's just astonishing. It's just astonishing that we're run by clever management. And fear and terror made up by think tanks and paid to dream up ideas to scare the blazes out of you to be go along with this agenda, which is not a new agenda. I say it was all discussed with the Rockefellers on behalf of the CFR, Royal Chief for International Affairs in the 1930s, a system of getting rid of this idea of democracy and micromanaging uh, every single individual, not just in our country, but across the planet, and eventually with world government starting off with world governance and then going into world government, of course. And we're pretty well there. And nothing is going to stop this because, you see, you have no rights. You have no say in any matter. The big think tanks that are privately owned to come out with all the nonsense they came out with uh, are paid by your tax money and the big private foundations owned by the big CEO, corporate managers, uh, and and, uh, and guys like Rockefeller and Rothschilds and the rest of the big boys, they have all the say in the world. Since they pretty well laugh and say that they own the world already, which isn't really a, a far stretch at all. 
Now remember too, for new listeners, you can order the books that I have at cuttingthroughthematrix.com website uh, and it's listed there how to get them and so on and folk can certainly donate people forget that uh, uh, i don't advertise products and make a, a living off again terrifying you to buy all kinds of herbal things that's going to save your lives i just come up with, with facts and research and all the rest of it which many folks use and i don't get paid for it so it's up to you if you enjoy what i'm talking about to uh, and and I know people are downloading the talks. There's thousands of talks up there I've given over the years. They're downloading them all the time, and only one of I don't know how many, uh, a thousand or whatever, whoever think of even contributing a dollar to me. And believe you me, I have to survive as well. So uh, I really appreciate it. If you want to donate, again, you can find out how to do it at cuttingthroughthematrix.com, and you can order the books as well. And read them at your leisure because it's good to have hard copies. And think for yourself. That's the whole idea, is to try and undo the indoctrination we've all had. Uh, the techniques are built into the the books in, this, in the way that they're actually written, is to unlock your your mind and allow it to ease up and free up, if you like, to to start thinking for itself. And, and not taking everything for granted because some expert says so. We're conned and ruled by experts, and that was the policy to eliminate what they called democracy uh, back in the 1930s onwards to the present time by the big group that literally runs, as I say, the United Nations. They set it up because it was set up by members of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And that was comprised initially at the top with the inner group of being top bankers for the world. The American branches CFR, they have branches in every country across the world, and their active group that actually puts themselves into government now, drafts up the policies, gives them by their own private think tanks, uh, and then pushes it, pushes it through as law. It's quite an amazing system. It's nothing like the system you're taught about and told about that's drummed into you, because you must be kept in the dark to the bitter end. Now from Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, as good nights and may your God or your gods go with you.